0: This is the first time she's been away this long. And uh, what she didn't expect is the shock of being alone. So, and then I said, don't you just go talk to friendly people. She said, those people are so unfriendly. So I said, you know, I speak to her, I said, did you go up the cabin today to the village, you know, a kilometer away? She said, today she's building up courage so she can face tomorrow's rejections. So, goodness, if you have any French people, talk to them about hosting new people who happen to be wandering around in your village. So I am going to talk, uh, launch us into the Sermon on the Mount series. We call it the Way of Jesus. And we're journeying through the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount starts with Matthew 5 verses 1 to 3. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, He went up on a mountainside and He sat down. His disciples came to Him. And He began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so, his sermon begins. It's found in Matthew 5-7. to It is the most famous sample of Jesus' teaching in the Gospels. It's the first sermon. It's the longest sermon. It's the most famous. Matthew's Gospel's got five sermons, and this is the first one and the most famous. Uh, if you go right to the end, chapter 7-28, it suggests that it was preached on a single occasion. However, in my will be a summary of teaching that was given over the course of several days. We don't necessarily need to think about it as a single sermon. So let me start off by saying what the Sermon on the Mount is not. It is not a law for all society. Jesus is going to give tons of uh, instructions about how to live your life. It's not a theocracy. Jesus didn't come to set up a theocracy like, guys, just take this, set up this as the constitution you know, Islam takes the teachings of Allah and says, this should be the law of society. Jesus never does that with his teachings. This is actually not a message to society in general, but rather to the church. The disciples gather around him. The Sermon on the Mount is also not a long list of rules that Christians should live by. Christians sometimes go, okay, well, there's like, you know, 37 little instructions Yeah, That's the law. The problem with this is that it takes some of the teaching in an overly literal and legalistic way, like cutting out the eye from your face, when the better way to understand it is to discern the spirit of Jesus' teachings. The point will, will make sense later. Jesus' teaching is more about how the kingdom of God transforms us from the inside out than it is a set of rules that we should abide by. The Sermon on the Mount is also not impossible to live by, so we shouldn't even try. Sometimes people read and go, oh, no, that's impossible. That's ridiculous. (laughs) I don't think any of us will ever get to the point where we can say, yeah, I keep the Sermon on the Mount. How about you? (laughs) But I think we're intended to start climbing this holy mountain, even if we only reach the top in heaven. Uh, The Sermon on the Mount is also not meant to make non-Christians feel guilty so they realize they need a savior. A lot of people take it like this. It's Jesus giving the law. You need to preach it to people who don't know God. They sit there, they're so guilty and go, you see, you're a sinner, huh? You need Jesus. That's, that is not what the Sermon on the Mount is about. It's a message primarily but not exclusively directed at disciples. It's for followers of Jesus who want to make progress in their following Jesus. However, there are also crowds that listen in. It's clear that Jesus is focusing his message on this occasion on his disciples, but he knows everyone is listening, listening in. The Buddha used to teach, have a teaching for the inside crew, and then another teaching for the outside crew. Jesus has one teaching, uh, all that to say, if you're new to church, welcome. Uh, this message is going to speak to you too, and in the series, fantastic for you to bring along friends and family, and join the crowds that thronged around Jesus as he teaches the Sermon on the Mount. The problem with starting the Sermon on the Mount at Matthew chapter 5 is you come in Cold. You have to understand what comes before the Sermon on the Mount to appreciate it. Just before the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 4, it says, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. That is the key. 45 times in in Matthew's Gospel, it speaks about the kingdom of heaven. By the way, when it says kingdom of heaven, it's not speaking about the kingdom that's up there in heaven. It's speaking about how heaven is invading earth. Is speaking about how God is coming to us. The kingdom of heaven is what our heavenly Father is doing on earth. Jesus is going to teach us the difference the kingdom makes in the way that we live. Um, we're gonna, we already see in the opening verse in the sermon is, For theirs is the kingdom of God. In Matthew chapter 6, He's going to teach us to pray, Your kingdom come. He's going to tell us to seek first the kingdom. And in chapter 7, He's going to speak about entering The kingdom. So, the Sermon on the Mount, you have to understand the kingdom of God. The sermon follows on an experience of the kingdom. Once you experience the kingdom, this is how your life changes. So what I want to do in this introduction is I want to look at before the Sermon on the Mount starts. If you flip open your Bibles, you know in Matthew chapter 3, there's Jesus' baptism. So why don't we look at that? Jesus' baptism is the moment he steps out of obscurity onto the stage of kingdom come. This first public event, rising from the waters, you know, descended upon by the dove of the Spirit being called the Son who pleases God. It's loaded with meaning that helps us to grasp the rest of His life's work. So let's just think a little bit about this baptism of Jesus. What What is the meaning loaded into? Well, it's all about the kingdom and it's especially showing that the kingdom of God is new creation. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, it speaks about how this, while creation is happening, the Spirit of God hovers over the waters. Well, there was a famous translation called the tagum in Jesus' time where they had translated like this the spirit of God fluttered like a dove above the waters similarly a dove once was sent out from a floating ark that returned with a, a, a leaf in its beak as a sample of the renewed creation God's people would live in so the descent of the spirit dove upon the water glistening Jesus is a picture of the kingdom as the arrival of new creation. Where God is healing what is broken. And he promises to bring this world to its originally intended destiny. The kingdom of God is about new creation. So if we are going to understand the Sermon on the, the Mountain properly, it's what your life looks like when God heals what is broken and brings you closer to your originally intended destiny. But let's keep looking at this baptism. It's about the kingdom. And it's not only about new creation. It's about the new exodus. If you're new to the Bible, just, you know, try to concentrate. All these concepts will come clear as you hear sermons like this one. 1,300 years before, Israel had been delivered from slavery to Pharaoh. As they passed through the Red Sea, and they emerged on the other side as a free people. And in this Exodus story, through Moses, God confronts in the plagues, Pharaoh... The gods and the cultic powers of Egypt. He's confronting these, most notably Pharaoh, who is meant to be an incarnate god. Uh, his own son dies during the Passover. Moses, God through Moses says, "I will bring ju- judgment on all the gods of Egypt." So God breaks the lineage of a man who claims to be the incarnation of the sun god. The Jews who uh, come out on the other side. And Pharaoh and his armies have sunk to the bottom of the Red Sea. Come on to the other side. They sing a song. And it's the first place in the Bible where it mentions God as king. Free people who are experiencing the inbreaking reign of God. They worship Him as their king. The Sermon on the Mount is what your life looks like when you see through the emptiness of the kingdoms of this world. Pharaoh and Egypt... Were the kingdoms of this world? You had no more awe-inspiring megawatt celebrity and power in the political entities on planet Earth, and yet along comes you know the true King, God, who defeats the kingdoms of this world and brings about a people who are freed by the true King. We live in a time where we are surrounded by the kingdoms of this age. We watch them fall. We watch them rise. And we are entranced by these kingdoms. Until you experience the kingdom of God. You see through the emptiness of it all. And you celebrate that you are now with the true king. The baptism of Jesus is loaded with even more meaning. Not just new creation and new exodus. But Jesus is the new king. That language, you are my son, is meant to remind us of Psalm 2. Which prophesies that one day God would install his king in Zion. And he would declare to him, you are my son. In Psalm 2, it's not just Egypt, but all the nations of the world that come against God who reigns from heaven. And God responds to this mockery by laughing. And by setting up his counterpart king on earth. See, God promises David that his son will rule forever. That son is Jesus. As Jesus is called the son in his baptism, God is saying, this is the true king. Uh, I'm the king in heaven, and this is my earthly counterpart. Jesus' primary message was that the kingdom of God had arrived. So doing, he was announcing that God had at last become king. So the Sermon on the Mount is what your life looks like when you recognize Jesus as your king. By the way, uh, when you look at the baptism of Jesus, there's a stunning parallel between uh, his inauguration as king, if I can put it like that, and King David, who a thousand years before, is, is also an inaugurated king. If you don't know the story, a thousand years before, uh, King David is the youngest son of Jesse. Samuel is looking for the next king of Israel. Everyone overlooks the young son. uh, And then Samuel gets hold of him and pours oil on his head. Samuel was instructed by the Spirit to find the next king and anoint him. And everybody watches in amazement as Samuel anoints this young man. And the Spirit of God comes upon him. And 1 Samuel 16 verse 13 says, from that point on the Spirit of God was with David. Now it's just a matter of time before David will actually become the king of Israel. But already they're surrounded by a motley crew of people who are not quite sure what is happening. God has inaugurated his true king. It's just a matter of time before everybody will know that the true king is here. Well, Jesus' baptism is exactly the same. There's a bunch of people being baptized at the Jordan River by John. Then arrives this man, Jesus. There's something remarkable happens. Heaven split open. The dove comes upon him. This voice, this is my son. They don't know it. But this is a Echo what happened a thousand years before. Heaven and earth's true king is now anointed. Some people have seen it. It's just a matter of time before he will actually be recognized as king. Jesus in his first coming is inaugurated. And his second coming, everybody will know about it. But you see? The kingdom age comes right in the midst of the fallen broken age. See, the kingdom dawned on the earth. Even though darkness will only be fully vanquished when Jesus returns. In this sense, ever since the arrival of Jesus, the kingdom is already here. But it's not fully here. We live in an age of cosmic overlap. Yet we, like David the king's first subjects, know that we have aligned our lives to God's select king. So the Sermon on the Mount is what your life looks like when you know something others don't. You know that Jesus has already been anointed king. That in time, everybody will know it. Other people you know, don't know where you're getting your directions from, what makes you tick, but you see Jesus as the true king. Although he, he, that hasn't become manifest to everyone, you've seen enough to know that you're banking your life on the person who is in charge of it all. Yeah. And then there's Jesus' temptation, which comes next. So, so there's the baptism, which I spent the most time on, and that's speaking about the kingdom. And it's loaded with so much meaning. But then there's, there's the temptation of Jesus. Or, or Jesus' conflict with Satan. I want to read Philip Yancey in his book, What's So Amazing About Jesus. A few, phrase, a few paragraphs i pulled out. As he unpacks Jesus' uh, temptation by Satan so masterfully. He says this. Like single combat warriors, two giants of the cosmos. Converged on a scene of desolation. One. Just beginning his mission in enemy territory, arrived in a badly weakened state. You've got Jesus, is hungry, he's been fasting for 40 days. The other, confident and on home turf, seized the initiative. That's Satan. And although Satan posed the tests, in the end it was he who flunked them. In two tests, because he tests Jesus three times, in two tests, he merely asked Jesus to prove himself. By the third, he was demanding worship. Something God would never accede to. The temptation unmasked Satan while God remained masked. If you are God, said Satan, then dazzle me. Act like God should act. Jesus replied, only God makes those decisions. Therefore, I do nothing at your command. And then I love this part. In these three tests, Satan proposed an enticing improvement. He tempted Jesus towards the good parts of being human without the bad. To savor the taste of bread. Without being subject to the fixed rules of hunger and of agriculture. To confront risk with no real danger. To enjoy fame and power without the prospect of painful rejection. In short, to wear a crown, but not a cross. This kingdom comes to us, but it doesn't come to us uh, in this form of triumph and victory while we're on the earth. I remember driving to surf... If a few years ago, in the back of someone 's car was like i 'm too anointed to be disappointed <laughs> and rhyme 's nice but when you read the Bible, if you are anointed, then it 's guaranteed you 're going to be disappointed <laughs> There is no crown without the cross. any Christian teaching when you 've got a person wearing their suit and giving you some teaching that guarantees that if you just follow their formula. Their confession, whatever it is, you will rise up to this victorious state, problem-free, exalted, even while you're on earth. You are subject to a false teaching that is Satan-like. There is a victory that is yours in the kingdom of God. But, it, but it, it's part and parcel with the, cru- with the cross. You don't get the cross without the crown. And as we read the Sermon on the Mount, you'll see what your life looks like when you realize that the crown follows the cross. And then, so there's, there's the temptation, there's the, the baptism of Jesus, it's telling us so much about the kingdom. Uh, then there's the, the um, temptation of Jesus, telling us about the kingdom. And then Jesus calls his disciples. At first, Jesus was walking beside the, sorry, it says, Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. When you read the Old Testament, when God, God comes in kingly power, he brings about a family, a people. Jesus is bringing the kingdom. Who are the people of the kingdom? Well, we're seeing them. And notice Jesus doesn't go to these full men and go, hey guys, I know you've got some cool plans with your life and you, you know set up with the family business here. But I've got a better prospect for you. If you just give me an hour, I'm going to cast a vision for you. And I'm going to give you 17 reasons why I think it will be a little bit of life enhancement for you. Then would you give me that time? He doesn't. He walks up to them. He doesn't uh, suggest they should follow him. He doesn't try to sell it to them. He calls them. Come, follow me. He summons them. When I became a Christian, I experienced something like that. I heard someone preaching the gospel, and God summoned me. (laughs) Called me by name. Didn't give me 17 reasons why my life would get better. Just call me. And that's what kings do. They don't make suggestions. They summon you. And Jesus is going to call eight other disciples. Twelve disciples. Why is he calling twelve disciples? Well, remember, the people of God in the Old Testament was originally twelve tribes. By the time of Jesus, ten of those tribes have, uh, you know, be, uh, basically uh, been wiped out of existence there's only two tribes now but there are many uh, teachings between the end of the Old Testament and the New Testament that when the kingdom comes the twelve tribes will gather again and Jesus is basically reconstituting the people of God under himself, these twelve disciples in a sense represent the, tw- the vanguard of God's people the twelve tribes the people of God gathered together you know what the word church means in Greek? It's ecclesia, which means called out ones. God calls you and he makes you one of the called out ones. When I got called by Jesus, I responded. And I looked around and I was like, hey, there's quite a few of us who have been called. Looking in this room today, maybe some of you are still you know, wondering if God's called you, but I'm suspecting a lot of you in your life's journey have been summoned. And, uh, you know, you look around, you're like, oh, so we land up together? <laughs> the Sermon on the Mount is what your life looks like when you've been summoned to be part of the people of God. And then after Jesus' um, baptism, and then there's Jesus' temptation and conflict with Satan, and, and then there's Jesus'... Um, I'm blank here. Calling of the disciples. Finally, there's Jesus' ministry. Jesus' ministry. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were with, ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures. And the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. The very people that are listening to the Sermon on the Mount have experienced his power come upon their bodies. Or or his power come upon the bodies of someone they know. They have seen sick people They've seen troubled people made whole. They've seen demons cast out of people afflicted by powers beyond their control. Jesus doesn't just announce the presence of the kingdom. He demonstrates the presence of the kingdom. One of the things that I've been learning since I've been part of this church from guys like Dave Child, you said in the way he led the meeting today, is he's looking for opportunities for God's power to break through. We want to be a church that doesn't just declare the presence of the kingdom, but practices the presence of the kingdom. And one of the practical ways to do it when we gather is to make space to pray for each other as the Spirit leads. But then we need to take that with us. The kingdom of God isn't uh, contained in a one and a half hour slot in our lives when we gather. What we experience here, we take with us. We pray for other people. We minister to other people. We're looking for opportunities to see God's kingdom come. But can you see the Sermon on the Mount is what your life looks like when you experience His liberating power come upon you. Michael Eaton, my favorite biblical scholar, he says, it's a description of the kind of life that ought to be lived by those who have come under the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see why all of this is so important? Dude? If you just start in Matthew 5, and so it starts telling you how to live, you come in so cold. But when you get the kingdom... You understand that all of this is, is what your life begins to look like now that you're in the kingdom. Now that you've been touched by the kingdom. Now that the liberating reign of God is a palpable reality in your life. Now that you get who Jesus is. And remember Jesus' words. He's telling them about the good news of the kingdom. But he says, repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. It would Repent. It kind of conjures up some negative, you know, overtones. I remember being on Camps beach having a lack of time. And the guy walked around and, and with a big sign saying, repent or burn in hell. And then he would, there was the sign. And then he'd walk around and he basically was denouncing the sun worshippers who were lying on the beach. <laughs> I remember I took this guy aside. I was like, hey man, I just want you to know I'm totally into Jesus too but what you're doing is whacked. <laughs> of course, he had his defense. He wasn't going to learn from anyone. But that word repent, it, it's got the wrong idea. The Greek word there is metanoia. Metanoia means, I, I'll tell you what, what, it, what it's effectively meaning. It means stop. There is an interu- your life is being interrupted. You are being uh, confronted with a new reality. Stop. You were so busy running around in your life. Stop. Evaluate. Metanoia means to rethink a change of mind. You've thought about life in this way. You've been subject to the kingdoms of the world. You have a definition in your mind of what human flourishing looks like. You know about Jesus. You think Christianity is one more religion. Stop. Re-evaluate your whole worldview. You missed something crucial. Jesus is the Son of God. He is heaven and earth's true King. He comes to rescue the world and renew all creation. He is the Son of God of David, promised in the Scriptures. He is the new Moses. He brings about an Exodus. Bang! Re-evaluate your life. What are the values you're living by? What are your priorities? The word repent means stop, re-evaluate, and reorganize your life. It's a kind of rethinking that rejigs your whole approach to life. Are you going to spend the rest of your life figuring out the implications of this new revelation, this new realization? And it's going to make you countercultural. If you live with people who only live in the kingdoms of this age, they take their leadership from the kingdoms of this age. But now you've come into the kingdom of God. You're getting instructions from on high. You are going to live your life Differently, You're going to live your life counter-culturally. Stop. Evaluate. Reorganize your life. And then Jesus begins his sermon on the mount. And the first thing he's going to say ten times. Is blessed are. 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 When the kingdom of God comes upon your life. Blessing comes upon you before you've even learned how to live differently. When I became a Christian, my goodness, I was going to spend the rest of my life trying to figure out, okay, you know, what the the impact of that on my life, my values, my decisions. I still feel like I'm caught between two worlds the kingdoms of this age, which are so. Uh, influential to me, I feel the tug of them on my lives, I'm experiencing the kingdom of God, so I'm in this tug of trying to live as a subject of the king, but it all started when I experienced the blessing of this king, the word blessing is the Greek word makarios, which basically means congratulations it starts with joy when we sing Together, as Signal Church, one of our values, maybe even bigger than authenticity, is joy. Macarios, congratulations. You're experiencing the goodness and the love of God breaking upon your life in the person of Jesus Christ. Blessings. All oh, right, it's a blessing that's going to change everything about the way you live your life. And that's why we're going to take a nice, long, slow journey through the Sermon on the Mount. I want to encourage you to try to come as, to as many as you can. Pray for us as leaders. We want you to try to figure out how to make more space for the people God's adding to our church. That we live first and foremost in the blessing of this kingdom that, that brings the love and the goodness and the power of God into our lives. pray this all in Jesus' name. Let's stand up. Luke, why don't you just lead us in a song and uh, what time is it now? 11 o'clock. Okay, guys, we're going to end in five minutes. If you've got to go before that, you're absolutely welcome to. If there's ministry happening, the way we like to do it in Signal, we just keep it near the front. We'll be ministering and you're free to socialize. So two things can be happening at once. Jesus, thank you that you are the king. Uh, Just now Luke was Singing those words, apparently led by the Spirit, about breakthrough. I mean, the kingdom is God breaking through, coming through in our lives. Jesus, we want to live in the impact zone of that kingdom. When we gather together as a church, we're gathering in the throne zone. Lord, we pray that heaven would invade our lives. We want to live in the thick, undeserved, magnificent blessing of the kingdom of God. Makarios. Congratulations. All of this for you. Look, Let's sing a song. I don't know what you're going to sing. <laughs>